0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and Welcome to another Thursday evening of a political talk sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. and I want to welcome back to the show, and I think it's appropriate because she covers all things political out there, for the first show of 2015, Maggie Haberman, senior political reporter for Politico. That's Politico.com. And if you are into pol- politics, you should be following Politico on a daily, if not minute-by-minute basis. Maggie, welcome back to Spin Class. Thanks for having me. So uh, we enter a new year. It's a new political year, new Congress in there. And we already had two announced retirements of of some figures, some interesting figures within the Congress. Uh, Barbara Boxer announces mm-hmm. in a... Very uh, touching uh, video message with her grandson that she's not running again. And mm-hmm. in New York, we had from the Hudson Valley, Chris Gibson, who was thought to be a rising star in the GOP, mm-hmm. and he decides he's not going to run for reelection in uh, two years. So, what's going on in Washington? What's new? What's old? What's changed? What hasn't? Uh,
1: well, not much. What has not changed is that Washington is still seen as a dysfunctional place. Chris Gibson. Uh, you know, earn, while he was seen as a rising star in the GOP, there is still some uh, presumption uh, that he is going to, or at least thinking of, running for governor in New York. So, you know, trouncing Sean Eldridge in his district and holding that seat for the Republicans to let them increase their majority uh, can only help him. I think that that's in large part what that's about. And he had also always said that he had a four-term uh, retirement pledge. Uh, you know, he's now going to be three, but nonetheless, you know, it's not a total surprise. And, frankly, neither is Senator Boxer. She, uh, uh, you know, there have been rumblings for a while that she might retire. Um, I think that uh, the, the party uh, in California believes that the demographics are right in terms of holding the seats. I think that they think there are a lot of up-and-coming stars um, who can hold it. Uh, but I think that it's going to create a really, really interesting scene in California, which is one of those rare states like Florida, like New York, with multiple media markets.
0: And California has this interesting now primary or the electoral system, right? It's a wide-open primary, not party yes. primary, and the yes. top two vote-getters get there. So how does that scramble things as as all these people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting to move up in the in the food chain now yep. look at uh, you know, their no, prospects? It's
1: no, it's not a, a get-in-line thing anymore. It is going to uh, create some uncertainty, but this is uh, – I think – I might be wrong. This might be the first – Senate, I guess it can't be. Uh, no, it will be. I think the first Senate race since that um, that new rule went into effect. So I think this is going to be uh, a really interesting test of how this works. You know, there's always been um, interest in trying to follow that system in other parts of the country. So I think how it fares there will dictate a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, – I, I still think that at the end of the day, even though it's a, a bit of a scrambled system and it's, it's – uh, Harder to predict. California races, going back to my point about media markets, they're they're one on money. I mean, you're going to be dealing with people who don't, you know, for the most part, uh, don't have statewide name recognition and, and so forth, and so uh, that's going to change things as well.
0: Okay, so let's now move back the other way to you know towards Washington and Washington itself. Uh, John Boehner elected as Speaker. Not unexpected, but what was unexpected is the amount of dissatisfaction with John Boehner and the Republicans finally get both houses that they've wanted for the twilight of the Obama presidency.
1: Mm-hmm. Yet
0: they don't seem to be able to kind of come together and be on message.
1: Well, I, look, I mean, there's been one of the big storylines uh, of uh, of 2014 was sort of the you know the establishment strikes back in terms of Republicans, right? So. Uh, Republicans found a way to use their incumbent protection programs a lot better than they had. Um, You know, I I, I think that you're still going to see some element of that in this Congress. I do think that uh, Boehner so far is indicating that he is likelier, in the same way that you are seeing Obama a little freer, I think you're going to see Boehner a little freer as well. My colleague, Glenn Thrush, did a fantastic profile of Boehner in Politico magazine that everyone should check out. Uh, and I think it will tell you a lot, frankly, about about where this is heading. Um, so I, I think that I think you are still going to see um, some rumblings, and I think you are still going to see some dissension. And he is still going to have to deal with, uh, you know, uh, parts of his caucus that are not going to respond to him. But I think at the end of the day, it is going to be a little easier.
0: And we're talking to Maggie Haberman, senior writer at Politico. We're talking essentially about all things political right now around the country. And, you know, as we go, we, we look for a new year. Uh, let's look back for a second at 2014. We have this big story, obviously the Republican sweep in Congress, the largest margin in the House, the governorships, uh, the, the taking of the Senate by a very significant margin. What do the Republicans do now in this, particularly in the Senate? to maintain the position, and what can the Democrats do to kind of make sure the Republicans don't maintain that position?
1: Well, I mean, I think that for the, for the Democrats' sake, you're going to see, uh, uh, you know, uh, Democrats have a more favorable map for 2016. So stri- strictly electorally, I think it's going to be uh, a little, uh, the edge goes there. In terms of Republicans and what you're going to see them do, Governmentally, uh, I think that you are going to see, uh, a lot of efforts. Look, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, handles, uh, uh, the, uh, handles his members. I think you are going to see efforts to try to look, you know, quote unquote reasonable, because that's the charge that Democrats will use against Republicans a lot. You're going to see efforts to try to say, look, we, this is what a Republican Governing majority looks like things actually get done and there is going to be an effort. Um, I do think you will still see efforts to thwart moves by the president. Um, but I also think that, uh, there, there will, there will be, uh, uh, criticisms that the president is trying to do things by fiat, uh, and, and, and usurping Congress. I think that, um, for Republicans, it's complicated because this is playing out against the backdrop of a looming presidential primary, um, which is going to be very big and sprawling and interesting on the Republican side and um, you know it, it's it's on the Democratic side it's obviously looking right now a little less so but so I think that that's going to uh, determine a lot of it I think there are going to be a lot of crosswinds from these various candidates some of whom are in the Senate um, and uh, at least at least one potential candidate uh, Paul Ryan although I don't think he's going to run um, who's in the house and I think that's going to bring a lot to bear as well
0: So that's a great segue because all eyes turn right now to 2016, and when people are looking at that, they're not really looking right now at who's going to control the Senate. What they're looking at is who is going to run for president. And we're in this interesting time right now because all the oxygen seems to be sucked out by two individuals, and I guess the big question is who will run against them. So let's take the Democrats first. Will anyone jump into the race against Hillary Clinton?
1: Uh, somebody will, but I don't know who it's going to be, and I don't think it's going to be Elizabeth Warren. I do think Elizabeth Warren might run if Hillary Clinton doesn't run, and while I think there are de minimis chances that Hillary Clinton doesn't run, it's certainly possible. Um, you know, in terms of um, the uh, in terms of the the Republican side, I think it will be a big field. Will it be as big as it looks right now? Probably not. But I, I think that, um, and there are a bunch of people who are question marks, but it is going to be incredibly complicated and crowded. It's both good for Hillary Clinton, obviously, because Republicans will be fighting against each other in these little mini primaries, and it's bad for Hillary Clinton because she doesn't sit on the lead very well.
0: Right. The inevitability thing is really what kind yep. of killed her back in two thousand eight you know, back in well, two thousand eight. It, so. it was
1: one thing anyway, but yes.
0: Well, well okay, one thing, staff and whatever it was, but what is, is staffing problems less... she was
1: she was not she was she was not as good a candidate as the
0: person she ran against. So um <laughs> Is she a better day, candidate now?
1: uh i think that she has been certainly better in the appearances that she did in the fall for other candidates uh i think she was much better
0: so now let's take the republican side obviously it's going to be a wide open field there's a lot going on out there but one thing that's interesting is you, you, the perceived front runner right now is you know a guy who would seem to have some baggage just by virtue of, you know, it's kind of the third time of a third Bush, and you know, are yes. voters that, uh, I guess, branded in uh, Republican voters that willing to be branded and say, okay, we well, you know, it's a Bush, we'll take it, even though he's already kind of running what I see is a general election campaign of, you know, not yes. pandering to the uh, to the right wing.
1: Well, that's just, that is that is what he says his plan is, um, and that he's, you know, more than willing to lose the primary. Um, you know, for the sake of running a quote-unquote appropriate race. Um, he's, he's. But everybody tough. will
0: say that. They don't actually mean it.
1: Well, that's the question with him, right? We'll see if that holds. So far it holds, but he's not actually a declared candidate yet. It's not really a form field. Um, I think that he is uh, – I think that this is going to prove tougher than he thinks, but I will say that the contrast that's going to be drawn for him, and this is to his advantage, it will change at some point, but for now the contrast that we be drawing for him will be – less about him compared to other Republicans and more and this is strictly in the media, by the way. Um, I'm not saying voters will see it this way, but at least for the early filter when, when the race is not really on. Um, uh he will be the contrast will be between him and Hillary Clinton, uh because the press is salivating for a Clinton Bush campaign. Um, and I think and because they're both their party's frontrunners, although they're in a very different positions, uh that has not been a negative uh, comparison for him so far uh, for a couple of reasons on the one hand yes the Bush name Bush fatigue um, I think there is less Clinton fatigue um, than people think there is for this reason the last boom economy was during a Clinton so uh, and the, the the economic problems began under a bush now the argument would be in a campaign well but that really began under Bill Clinton and so forth and that's all uh, to be worked out but in terms of The muscle memory that that middle class voters who are going to be the ones who decide, you know, in four or five states um, in the general election, how this plays out, that's going to be the real thing.
0: Now, let's just talk for a second about the I think what's been termed appropriately by some of your colleagues in the journalistic world uh, as the freak show part of the race. And, you know, we're going to be suffering through about two years right now of various type of freak show stories, meaning things that are kind of irrelevant. But yet everybody likes to play up in our news cycle, these little factoids about different candidates. And one thing I'm talking about is the Chris Christie hug of Jerry Jones. Sure. Uh, you know, being a Cowboys fan. That seems to be driving the national debate right now is whether Chris Christie is entitled to be a Cowboys fan.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> look, this is... um. In 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 the clickable social media world, it's not exactly a surprise that a story about Chris Christie a being a Cowboys fan and b um, like giving an awkward hug to Jerry Jones was going to take off. Um, this is this is the thing with Christie is when so much of your the focus on your brand is about sort of personality, then this kind of stuff uh, is going to get a lot of attention, and it is getting a lot of attention. Um, it's also look like the the in in and you know this in the in the New York region um and in any region but certainly in this one where christy is from um in the in the adjacent state your sports allegiances are a really big deal remember what happened with hillary clinton when she put on the two caps i mean clinton I uh, christy referred to that the other day so i don't think it's a i don't think it's a big surprise
0: and ted cruz going to celebrating passover okay <laughs> yes he's not jewish <laughs> but what's wrong with Ted Cruz going ahead and celebrating Passover at a very luxurious hotel with lots of other people celebrating Passover?
1: Well, there's there's a there's nothing wrong with it, and 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 as you know, as a as 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 somebody who is Jewish, I I always appreciate people celebrating the holiday. Um, in terms of uh, the politics of it, it's going to a pretty granular level um, in terms of making an appeal uh, for 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 Jewish voters. He is he is staunchly pro-Israel, as you know, so. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not totally surprised, but it, it is, um, and it will, it will introduce him to sort of a, a different nexus of, of, of potential supporters, but it is not something you generally see. You don't generally see solicitations for vacations featuring a slew of rabbis and, and Senator Ted Cruz, and, and that's what happened here
0: well it 's kind of like going to rob banks that 's where the money is, so Passover programs, especially ones at five star hotels is essentially that 's where the money is but he 's been working
1: the donor network very hard yes, I,
0: that is very I, true very clear I think Rand Paul going to a Passover program might be a little more of a uh, a little more <laughs> of a surprise, but I appreciate the fact that you know everything about the candidates right now is and i think Probably all of the dirty laundry on Hillary is is kind of out there. Although you never know, Jeb Bush is making a point of getting his dirty laundry out there. Yep. What about all these other candidates? Who who out there is essentially unvetted? Or are we not sure about?
1: Not everybody's unvetted. I mean, it's like I think mean, Hillary Clinton is is vetted, except that like, and she's been through a tremendous amount of scrutiny, and yet there's you know. There's a whole State Department ten- tenure that's going to get looked at. There's her, her family's foundation that's going to get looked at. There's a lot of stuff in terms of, um, uh, you know, in terms of everything else, in terms of the, the rest of the Republican field, for the most part, nobody is vetted. Um, Christie, I would argue, is probably um, the closest to it because uh, of Bridgegate and the familiarity with sort of recent stuff. But, you know, there's there's... He's, he's had a whole career prior to being governor. Jeb Bush, he was extensively vetted as Florida's governor, but he's been out of office for eight years. Um, you know, for the, mo- the there are, there are senators who are looking at running. Ted Cruz would be one, Rand Paul would be another, um, who have not seen that much national vetting, and I think that'll be a big deal too.
0: Okay, so finally, I just want to get a, I know I'm going to ask you a local question because you, you're a former New York Post reporter, so I think it's, uh, you know, we I can am. still bring things That's back true. to New York. Let's just talk about our mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, had a rough couple weeks, I think, and he's also trying at the same time to be a national figure. He wants the Democratic National Convention to come to Brooklyn. He's looking to make income inequality the cause of the Democratic Party and be the poster child for it. Maybe I'm exaggerating that a little bit. How does the national scene look at Bill de Blasio and his travails right now? Do they look at him as, you know, his first year? Uh, how would you assess it, and how is he viewed outside of New York?
1: The reality is that I think that most people outside of New York are not paying that much attention to what is happening in New York. Bill de Blasio's aides have been trying to make him a national figure. He isn't really a national figure beyond the platform that he has um, and, and the message that he had at that particular moment. In terms of um, uh, in terms of national progressives. The view that I have heard overwhelmingly is that people actually think that he's handling himself well, um, because the, the sort of local political aspect of it and the, the governing aspect of it, um, in terms of dealing with the NYPD, doesn't come across in the same way. Uh, you know, if you're asking me about the local politics, that's obviously a different story. I, I haven't seen any recent public polling. The last I saw, he was at 52%, um, but you know, which is which is not terrible, outside uh, the stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh, but it's not you know it's not it's not historic highs either. Um, but nationally, he's not in fact like a huge player nationally. I, I also think there has been some discussion, uh, you know, since this issue with the with Pat Lynch began, you know, to spill over uh, with De Blasio. There has been some discussion about how De Blasio is not a. Uh, 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 excuse me, about how De Blasio's big dream of having the convention come to New York. Was now never going to happen. I, you know, there were a lot of reasons why that might not have happened anyway, um, and and the main one is that it's very hard to see why Hillary Clinton would want a convention in New York so that the whole convention could be about Bill De Blasio, um, or at least partly about Bill De Blasio. But in terms of point. in terms of so, but in terms of nationally, I just don't. Um, I, I just don't. I, and and it's also like it's it is it is un, rare. It's not unheard of. But it is rare that you would have the convention in the same, you know, general area where you're going to have the campaign. Um, and Hillary Clinton's campaign is going to be in New York. I think that um, uh, I think that in terms of to your original question, in terms of De Blasio's reach nationally, you know, a it's not that broad, and b I don't. I think most people are sort of um, watching and, and wondering what's going on. But I would make the point that, and again, this is what I was saying about national Progressive, What most people have read about leading up to this moment was these protests that were generated by the shooting in Ferguson and by the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island. So it's a very, very different scenario.
0: Okay, Maggie Haberman, senior writer at Politico, thanks for joining us, wrapping up uh, 2014 and giving us uh, some insight into 2015 and 16. Hope to have you back again soon.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Take care. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics sponsored by Beckerman, beckermanpr.com, and I'm happy to welcome for the first time Bill Mahoney from Capital, New York, was formerly at NYPERG, which is the New York Public Interest Research Group, and he covers Albany and all the minutiae of Albany. Bill, welcome, back. welcome to Spin Class. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Bill, Sheldon Silver... Now, once again, Speaker of the Assembly, he has a 7,635th straight day yesterday. I was there when he was sworn in, and uh definitely this was more interesting for a lot of people or I guess a little bit suspenseful than most of uh, the times that Sheldon Server has been sworn in as Speaker. He's about to set a record. He's got 529 more days to go. When he surpasses O.D. Heck, a Schenectady Democrat, as the longest serving speaker, how does he do it? And what about this time being sworn in speaker is most, makes it most interesting?
2: Yeah, he's certainly on pace to break the record for longest serving, for longest serving speaker. If he finishes out this full two year term, then he will hold the record next June. Um, but this time around, he's been reelected every single, every single session for the past And two-year sessions, but this time around, the allegations that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI have been investigating his outside business interests. These were kind of hanging over the room when he was being debated as the next speaker. When they were on the assembly floor, they didn't allow any debate over whether, about whether or not he should be reelected. It was just a yes or no for members. But he did receive an overwhelming majority of votes from his own conference. Only one member, a Democrat from Harlem, voted against him.
0: Uh, that would be Charles Barron, actually, just a of Brooklyn. Um, but Charles Barron is a, you know, is, has been very outspoken as uh, as a both when he was in the City Council as well. Yeah,
2: I don't think that was too surprising. And it didn't have anything to do with the allegations against the Speaker right now. I believe his wife voted against over two years ago when there was no evidence of any investigations going on. So it's mostly due to criticisms from the left um, saying that African Americans. The African-American community isn't represented well enough in Albany. But, but, yeah, that's the only source of opposition. Nobody within this conference is willing to vote no against him, despite the news that it's possible that he might be getting in trouble in the near future.
0: So let's so just to explain, for those out there who don't understand Albany and how Albany works, wouldn't it be a liability, potentially, for the Democratic conference going forward to have a, to have a speaker, uh, have a leader... Who is uh, uh, under investigation now? Of course, let's just leave this for aside for a second, and I I, w- I wouldn't mind if you got into this to clarify a little bit. All we have right now is an article in the New York Times saying that they're looking that the that the U.S. attorney is looking at certain uh, payments uh, made to Sheldon Silver as as part of his law practice. Correct? Well, there's no, I mean, so far I don't see any smoking gun.
2: Yeah, there's nothing out there that says that, you know, he was collecting payments that were similar to bribes or anything like that. That's never no no allegations like that have been made public Um, on the surface. It does seem that if he was getting payments from a law firm secretly and wasn't disclosing these payments on his ethics disclosure forms, that could theoretically get him in trouble. Um, In Albany, if you're a state lawmaker, it's kind of expected that you have an outside job. It's a part-time duty to be a state legislator, so more than half of them make some money on the side on top of their salaries. Um, But you've got to disclose to the state ethics commission how much you're making and who's paying you. Um, If he was getting payments from somebody and wasn't disclosing this, that could run him afoul of state law. Um, it's unclear how that would get him in trouble with the federal government. It's possible they could go after mail fraud violations or something like that, but it's also possible he's got a perfectly innocent explanation. It's unclear he hasn't spoken publicly, and I believe everybody who's tried to reach out to him since this surface, um, he hasn't given anybody any comments in terms of attempting to clarify what exactly he did.
0: So, Bill, you anticipated my question, and it was exactly that. If, he, if it's a matter of disclosure, this is a rule having to do with his office in albany and it's a state level thing if the feds are investigating you have to figure that there's some that they're going after him or at least let's just suppose or hypothetically that that's what's going on in a way that they prosecuted former senate majority leader joe bruno uh because otherwise where is the u.s attorney coming into this this is not a if it's just a disclosure issue but maybe uh just explain for a second because Sheldon Silver admits to having a law practice he has he has a law practice he's he's of counsel at at least one law firm because I, I think he he changed his his disclosures to at one point he was just Whites and Luxembourg but now there are other law income that he has so what's the problem that's been written about right now with him having other law income
2: Well the reason that politicians in Albany are required to disclose their outside business is because theoretically this lets voters and the media observe how they're voting and what bills they're introducing and seeing if perhaps they're standing to make some money on the side from whatever they're doing. If you've got somebody who's, I don't know, if they own a pharmacy and they're introducing bills that would increase the rate of reimbursement that pharmacists are getting under Medicaid or something like that, I'm sure that bill would be subjected to a lot more scrutiny than if they, were, if they happened to be a real estate agent. And it's a way to, for the public to understand what's really happening and if, there, and if there might be any conflict of interest in legislative action. But what we're seeing with Speaker Silver is that he was getting this money, apparently, from this firm that deals with real estate taxation, and nobody's known this in the past. There has been criticism it levied against him from many editorial boards, like the New York Daily News just ran one a month ago about his work on behalf of the tort lawyers' lobby, where he's stood with them on issues like scaffold. The the scaffold law, he doesn't want it repealed, and other personal injury lawsuit regulations, he's often been loyal to them while collecting money from a personal injury firm. But nobody in Albany has known until a couple weeks ago that he was also getting money from a law firm that has an interest in real estate tax issues. And so a lot of people are raising their eyebrows now and just wondering what they didn't know in the past. He was involved in these real estate transactions in the past.
0: So I, I guess now the universe of potential clients is much is much larger from from that perspective. But you know, in a sense, it's still a question of okay, he has some of these guys. Everybody's known for a long time about Whites and Luxembourg, and clearly uh, Albany or at least the Assembly has been very hostile towards any type of talk, tort reform. But so, how come? In the same way, nobody has ever made an issue of that, that you haven't heard of a federal investigation around that. Now, all of a sudden, when it comes to this income, uh, that's around tax certiorari, which is, uh, you know, tax refunds, uh, now all of a sudden everybody has their antenna up. What, what's the difference between what happened in the past couple of weeks versus what's happened in the past?
2: Well, I do think that it's fair to say that people have had their antennas up over the tort reform stuff in the past where a number of groups that represent the business community, for example, that wants to change the scaffold law in New York, City, um, they've criticized silver for collecting money from the, from this law firm in the past and having a job there while also preventing things like scaffold reform from happening. Um, but now, what's likely to happen in the coming months is that this extra angle will be added to it where when, when certain tax breaks have to be renewed later on this session, Um, A lot of people will probably be looking at this from the lens of how the firm that's paying the Speaker of the Assembly might stand to benefit. And I'm sure there will be a lot of criticism from editorial boards in the coming months.
0: I guess, a more, it's easy to criticize. I'm sure that there's a lot of criticism out there and, and certainly you could, there's no shortage of detractors when it comes to what goes on and the goings on in Albany. I guess my question is, you know, it's a little different when you have some criticism versus when you potentially have the federal government investigating. So I guess yeah. that's a, but, um, Bill, you're known as the data guru, I guess, or for a time as for, in, in Albany and, you know there are a lot of there's a lot of numbers out there to crunch, particularly around campaign finance. And New York has an absolute, you know, at least what I consider an absolute mess of campaign finance uh, uh, enforcement. Uh, when it, what is what are some of the most egregious things right now from your you know from from the data and the reporting that you have found out there as far as New York's uh, poorest campaign finance laws?
2: Well, I don't know if I could say that they're the most egregious. Um, I'll take a top transitioning five. For, <laughs> transitioning from my role as, as a lobbyist for some of these things to a journalist, um, I can't specifically say that they're egregious, but some of the things that have been criticized in the past, um, a lot of them focus among the, uh, on the very high contribution limits that we see in New York State. Um, of the states that regulate campaign finance law, um, New York by far and away has the highest contribution limits and it's possible for candidates to receive Basically unlimited sums of money from individual donors. Governor Cuomo, for example, in his re-election efforts, got over got a million dollars from one developer in New York City, Leonard Lutman alone. Um, theoretically, there are contribution limits of about sixty thousand dollars in place for statewide candidates like himself. But there are a number of loopholes in the law that let certain corporate entities, like LLCs, give extra money um, to candidates. And if you know what you're doing, this means you can basically give however much money you want.
0: Right. So what we're talking about is the idea that, uh, LLCs are tr- treated not like corporations. They're trans- They're treated like every, you know, another person. So every single LLC that might, somebody might have, it's, you know, it's that, that highest level. And as you said, you know, somebody can give a million dollars es- essentially personally, but as long as it's coming from different entities that, uh, people can do that. Now, it, and that applies essentially mostly to the statewide elected officials, but, uh, but, It doesn't seem that – it seems that aside from Andrew Cuomo, nobody really was able to kind of hit those numbers, right? I mean, you didn't really have unlimited amounts of cash going into the other races, the other statewide races.
2: Yeah, both Snyderman and Napoli, the attorney general and comptroller who were reelected this year or last year, I guess, at this point, both of them received hundreds of thousands of dollars from a couple of different donors, but it certainly wasn't at the magnitude that Governor Cuomo received money. For a lot of the legislative offices, it's similar. You're not going to anticipate your regular senator or assembly member receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars from one donor. They might get tens of thousands of dollars, which is still over the theoretical contribution limits that are in law. Um, But a lot of the money flows through the political parties where there's the Democrats in the assembly and the Republicans in the Senate especially have political entities that can raise unlimited amounts of money and do receive checks of six or seven figures on occasion and can spend this on behalf of the candidates who are helping them raise the money.
0: And actually that leads me specifically to a question I wanted to ask because one of the big issues that was uh, kind of exposed or talked about in the run-up to the November election was specifically around the New York City mayor raising money for the Senate Democrats and doing it at contributions levels that exceeded what one could give which uh, essentially one person, I think it was uh, out there, or yeah, I'm sure there more than one person that I read, uh, out there, but more than one, I'm sure, uh, called it just essentially money laundering, that you'd give money, that a donor would give money to a party, which then in turn would give it to a candidate. So you could go ahead and give more money, exceed the limit, just by putting it through a different entity. Um give, give us some perspective about that, because I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is just the total absurdity of the way, of this whole system. And, uh, you know, it's, it essentially, you know, it's not, as I think Parikh Barara said, it's not what's illegal, it's what's legal right now that's the problem. Yeah,
2: if you wanted to give to a candidate amounts above the limit that you're supposed to give, there are loopholes like the LLC one that I mentioned earlier, but it's also possible to send money to a bunch of different sources and then have each of these sources transfer money to the candidate. And both parties do this to some extent. We saw this, as you mentioned, with Mayor de Blasio in the most recent election, where candidates for Senate would be running in competitive races upstate, and you'd see some donors, particularly New York City type, some some unions that are more heavily concentrated in New York City, as well as figures like John Katsimatidis, would contribute money to these county parties. And you'd see a $60,000 check flowing to the Ulster County Democrats from a New York City person who's never given to them before. And then that would be immediately turned around and spent on behalf of one of the Senate candidates who were running up there. And the result is that this money went to benefit one candidate. It was all perfectly legally done, but it was significantly higher than the contribution limit that these particular candidates happened to have.
0: Right, so I th- essentially it, it, all the rules kind of go ahead and you know they kind of go out the window, uh, as it were. Um, now, who are the amongst the amongst the rank and file out there, in the, you know, the regular assemblymen and the regular senators that you speak to, and what, what is there who can't raise that kind of huge money? So essentially, that they're you know they're not part of this. Is there any movement? Amongst those rank and file to to clean up this system because I think that, you know we we had seen that the governor was trying to tie that to a pay raise at the end you know pay raise for the lawmakers in order to have campaign finance reform but in the end the legislature didn't go for it uh, why wouldn't most legislators who don't can't raise that type of huge money why wouldn't they want to go ahead and have some cam, kind of campaign finance reform in exchange for getting paid more?
2: Well, I do think a lot of them, even the rank and file members, can benefit from this system, even if they haven't in the past. Um, Usually, these huge contributions that we're talking about only go to the most competitive races. There's 63 seats in the New York State Senate. I'd say in a typical election, maybe 15 of those, if you're being generous, are really competitive and are really up in the air. And pretty much all the money goes to those seats. And I think a lot of the incumbents who might be afraid that in a couple of years they might have an election that's going to be much closer than anything they've faced in the past, they like the idea that this money can be sent their way and they could effectively raise unlimited amounts of money through some of the rules that are currently in place, and a lot of them are hesitant to change it. And for a lot of others, it's just simply not a major priority. If they're trying to figure out what's going to get them the most votes in a couple of years, fair to say that campaign finance isn't going to resonate with all of their voters the same way that perhaps a new tax break or a job development program would, and they're more willing to put their energy towards programs like that.
0: Well, you've uh, you've actually scared me, Bill. I I think at this point I'm really uh, I, I'm I'm trying to think that you know nothing is going to uh, we're not going to get the reform essentially clean up this process, and uh, I guess we'll have to stay tuned. Uh, just you know for a second, last question for you: transition from advocate slash good government to journalist. I, I am a little bit curious on a personal level how you've uh, how you experienced that transition in a place like our state capital.
2: Well, a lot of what I had done as an advocate, I was, I was a government reform lobbyist. So, a lot of what I was looking working on issues like transparency in state government, that's not that different from what most reporters are spending their time doing. And so, working with state records and trying to out how the state's spending its money, things like that, that's practically not that different from what I'm doing two months later.
0: Right. I guess you're not. You just can't express your opinion right now. So there, there we go. Um, Bill Mahoney. Reporter for Capital New York, giving us the state of play around campaign finance as well as uh, the current imbroglio involving S- Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver, who is on his track to eclipse a record as Speaker of the State Assembly in Albany. Bill, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you and hope to have you back. This is Spin Class, we're talking politics, sponsored by beckermanpr.com and uh we're going to kind of have a little special because there's a special election coming up and over the vacancy of the 11th congressional district, Staten Island and Brooklyn, and we are going to, you know, kind of do a little not a debate, a discussion uh between two of the premier political consultants on either side of the aisle in New York City. We have Democrat now-turned-independent, Michael Tobman, uh, who is uh, really a go-to guy for a lot of people running in Brooklyn and other places in New York City, as well as E. O'Brien, Obi-Murray, uh, who is well-known to Republican political consultants. And we're going to be talking about the Staten Island slash Brooklyn race. Guys, gentlemen, thanks for wel- – Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class.
3: Thank you for having
0: me and happy secular New Year. Uh, Happy secular New Year. Happy New Year and thank you for having me, Michael. Okay, so gentlemen, uh, you know, as I said, not a debate, a discussion. And the, the special election hasn't even been called yet. Already, the lead, one of the lead stories on Politico is the GOP's Staten Island headache. And I'm referring to the fact that the chattering class out there thinks that the GOP has a headache on their hands with regard to this race, you would think of the race of the races out there in a special election, particularly in New York, even in New York State, this would be one that Republicans probably should win, given the fact that Mike Grimm, who was under indictment 20 counts, ran away won this race run running away. He won running away. uh, And it would seem that this is a Republican lock. Why is there a headache for the GOP, Obi?
4: Well, I use the term headache. I think whether it, it, it's uh, Senator Lanza, Nicole Malatakis, or Dan Donovan, I think the Republicans can win. So I'm not sure how I would describe it as a headache. I think it's, I would use the term distraction. I think uh, anything that happens on Staten Island right now is going to focus on the Eric Garner case. And that, that's going to be a major issue right now, no matter what the case is. And I think what you're alluding to and talking around is if Dan Donovan's the nominee, how much more that becomes a conversation. Uh, and, and as we all know, if you look at the Bob Turner race, that was a special election as well. And the whole country knew what was going on in that race. So this just becomes another platform uh, to have a conversation. <clears throat> and I think that, that just becomes a big topic in this race.
0: Okay, Michael Tobin, how much red meat are the Democrats looking at? when they, when you look at this, and I know you're friendly with some of the potential Democratic candidates, how much are they kind of chomping at the bit to face Dan Donovan?
3: Yeah, You know, I think, and I think, Michael, you were very correct to phrase this as a discussion rather than a debate, because I think OB and I are going to agree on a lot of this, which is to say this entire conversation is taking place in the context of Dan Donovan's a great guy. I mean, who everybody likes him, and I understand people have issues with the way he was handling the Garner grand jury, but he's a good guy who's been in the politics a long time and has been in public service a long time. The question becomes, as Ob was suggesting, is is it appropriate for him to be advancing himself in the context of highlighting issues of race relations, police conduct, and controversies in New York City when the national GOP is trying to... uh, generate a list of accomplishments because they now have the Senate as well as an expanded majority in the House, and for their inevitable 2016 presidential campaign, is this something they need to do? Is this something they need to engage when it could be characterized fairly, and again in the context of Dan being a great guy, as maybe needlessly messy and reckless? So are we going to be able to talk about Staten Island transportation, infrastructure, Intermodal, you know, hubs for mass transit and and housing and and mortgages and 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 uh, unemployment and underemployment. When every question reporters ask is going to be about the Garner case.
4: Well, actually, Michael, if you think about this, if you went back a year ago, the number one issue in this race would have unequivocally been Sandy and mm-hmm. the recovery.
3: Mm-hmm. That's which,
4: right. Which is something that wasn't mentioned in, in a district
3: in the in the North Shore of Staten Island that Nicole represents. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's. It, it, you know, does the Nicole Maliotakis, let's
0: just actually set the table for everybody. Nicole Meliotakis is currently a Republican Assemblywoman yes. who represents both Staten Island and Brooklyn, as well as Dan Donovan is the current district attorney of Staten Island, who Ooh. famously handled the Eric Garner case. Uh, as well as mentioning Andrew Lanza is the current state senator who represents most of Staten Island, but not all of Staten Island. Uh, Those Dan, are on the Republican side.
4: Dan, right. two, Dan four years ago ran for Attorney General, again, Schneiderman, lost that on a statewide basis, but I think I had read recently and seen numbers that he's won that. He won Staten out by 20 points, even though he lost statewide. He represents right, all and he routinely
0: wins his DA by, uh, by, by significant margins.
4: Well,
3: right. you know, it's very interesting. I think this underscores the dichotomy and attention in the Democratic Party as well, because I believe even the most ardent, strident progressive of Democrats believes that a Republican will win this seat. So the city hall locally want to be highlighting and revisiting all of these issues while the national party, the national democratic party, is, as you said, uh, Michael, chomping at the bit and salivating at the idea of underscoring and highlighting these issues involving policing and race relations nationally. And they're going to be pointing at Staten Island as like this specimen in a zoo someplace. It's not fair.
4: It's not fair to Staten Island voters. voters. Lost
0: Island, right? Yeah, you so about like the numbers. So let, let get, actually, Obie, it's a great point because I want to get to that question in particular. I know we focused on Dan Donovan quite a bit, right. but but let's let's focus on the fact that who picks the candidates here? It's picked by the party chairman. It's picked by the local party. It's not that the National Republican Campaign Committee or the D Triple you know the, goes ahead and picks the candidates here. This is done by the local people. All is, they're interested in, It is the in, definition is of winning.
3: inside baseball, and and the DCCC, looking at it from the Democratic side, has got to be rolling their eyes and thinking, oh, God, Staten Island again, because they got so burnt with the recce campaign, where though Dominic's a great guy, and everybody knows him and likes him, he couldn't articulate an answer on the most basic of policy issues that a congressperson needs to know. So they have to be thinking, oh, we, we need to do this again?
0: Really? So, <laughs> So, so is what you're saying is that the Republicans have this in the bag no matter who runs?
3: I think the Republicans will do very well no matter who runs. I think the question is, what impact does it have on the Republican narrative citywide, statewide, and nationally?
4: The, the thing we've learned, Michael, in New York, especially, and I've done a f- few specials around here, actually, the Doug Hoffman race upstate New York, and then I did the Bob Turner race down here, which I ran, uh, any special election, it happened last year with a guy named David Jolly down in Tampa uh, when he ran for Congress, and, and Sanford in, in South Carolina, any special election becomes a, nat- a national debate. And in the races in, in Tampa, it, it was about Pelosi. In, in Sanford's race, the Democrats tried. Steve Colbert's Oh, B, for was that
3: not- matter, all the midterm elections that we just saw with the majority in the Senate now.
4: Yeah, but, but these, these individual races right. are races that are a chance to have a national discussion.
0: So I guess what I'm hearing gentlemen is that the the issue here is okay the republicans are going to win the seat it's a headache more for the democrats but somebody's trying to say well now there's a conversational headache for the national republicans. You know, if so, Dan Donovan wins. We're talked about Derek Eric Garner, and let's not assume anything, but let's just say that he wins, and it's a liability, and he becomes a liability in Congress.
3: I I, I I will add a level of complexity to that because nothing, as as my children are so tired of me saying when we're reviewing their English homework, nothing is ever just about one thing. So if Donovan were to run and to win. The governor, our Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, gets to appoint the next interim district attorney to fill the seat. There's an idea out there that he would do some sort of do no harm deal with Republicans in Staten Island, which I believe is the furthest thing from the truth because given perhaps national aspirations and the legacy of his father who just passed, it, which of course we're all terribly upset about, and the fact that he just had a muscular primary, a, um, from the Working Families Party-backed folks, he has to appoint a good Democrat for that seat. So why I, run, create a headache, and open up the district attorney's office to a gubernatorial appointment, which would be a Democrat?
4: I, I would actually point out the question of when is a special election going to take place, Mike? Because exactly. the
3: governor who has a history of not calling special elections, if, if although with the feds it's different. I don't know what the law is. You can't just let a congressional seat sit empty.
4: There would be, I would think, court action if it sat open too long. Right. But but what I'm getting at is the sooner it happens if Dan Donovan is the nominee and then he wins, the sooner there's a vacancy. Now, the longer the governor waits, the less likely it is to be beneficial to whoever he appoints to be an incumbent.
3: Now, As, let's not forget the district attorney's office is held by a competent, democratic, professional prosecutor for many, many years.
4: Well, all that aside, if you look at the way State has been voting lately, though, it depends who that person's going to be.
3: Right again. It's it's a very and Michael. I'm sorry. I keep it's your show. I keep talking. No, about it. I guys. This is, I but, got to
0: tell you, we're in we're going in a direction that I totally unexpected, which makes it all the more fascinating. It, I it, thought it, we were going to get into a discussion of who's going to win. You know, who we haven't even just talked about who might run on the Democratic side. So keep well, going. Uh, who? One more point who, who, on the Republican side. It, it, the again, line? in the context
3: of Dan being a great guy and everybody loves him, and if he decides to run, he'll win. The question is the propriety of his candidacy. The issue also becomes one of, you know, as you said, Democrats salivating or having red meat and, and, and donors to the Republican candidate, if it's Donovan and what they're going to be subjected to. It's, in a lot of ways, it's almost not fair to Dan, but then the issue becomes Nicole Maliotakis, the assemblywoman. There are things she can't talk about without appearing plaintiff or complainy, which is the role of women in government and gender inequities in the House. Things she would never talk about because that's not good politics and it's not how she's wired. But you know, there are issues out there, so it's, oh, it's, could, it's an I, I immensely Nicole, complicated
4: Nicole situation. Any of those issues very articulately and, and carry carry a, a great banner for that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let, let's just Remember, step, Michael, let's step Mike, back for Michael a second Lash?
0: because I, wa- I want to I guess I want to focus the discussion I guess around a potential race and I know we're talking all hypotheticals mm-hmm. for a second, but the way the race gets decided is that the is that the party decides now. Right now, it, it, just this afternoon, the Brooklyn Republicans met and they decided they wanted to call Malia Takis. Okay, partly I guess because she also has represents uh, Brooklyn. As I think they to, decided the other, that they would jump. leave it up to their right as well file as that would
3: probably party. go in her direction.
0: Okay, hold on. The conservative party, the conservative party chairman of Brooklyn, uh, has, wants the Komei Now, most of the people on Staten Island, at least Republicans have reported so far, they want Dan Donovan as, to be their candidate. And Staten Island has more representation, so if Absolutely. everything held right now, you would expect Dan Donovan to be the one to run. Um, let's take the Democratic side for a second. Okay, two names that are thrown out there: Michael Cusick, current assemblyman, very popular guy, uh, a a former Schumerite, right, just like you, Michael Tobin, yeah. and as well as Mike McMahon, who briefly held the seat for two years before uh, Mike Grimm did. Okay, which one of those, or is there somebody else out there who might be running on the Democratic side, as well as uh, Bill Colton? I should say, I'm sorry, an assemblyman right, from Brooklyn.
3: Right, right, and Ob, allow me to step on this for a second. I apologize. Um, my gut is. The former congressman, Mike McMahon, does not run. Mike Cusick uh, would not have to give up his assembly seat to run the special election. And, you know, maybe he makes lightning in a bottle and makes a good run of it. The problem with a Democratic assembly member running for this seat is it becomes a referendum on Speaker Sheldon Silver, who is in the news these days. As much as Dan Donovan would be speaking about the Garner case, a Democratic candidate would be speaking about... Well, why did you vote for Shelley Silver Speaker, given the, uh, the investigations he, into his? He didn't, he
4: didn't just vote for him. He actually voted for him this past week as well. That, I mean, he, it's regular...
3: Exactly. Bill just Colton is very interesting. We just saw an Italian fella off-island, Dominic Recchia. and I say off-island being off Staten Island, run for the seat and not do terribly well. Bill Colton has one of the most diverse, active, muscular Democratic clubs in Brooklyn, but I just don't think the numbers are there.
4: Um but I don't I don't see a path to victory right now for any of the democrats
3: for any democrat correct because
4: what you're going to have happen here is no matter who the nominee is Al Sharpton is going to march across Staten island north south east west anywhere he can and that is going to rile up everybody against Al Sharpton and make it the referendum of Al Sharpton Well,
3: well be that that's that, that's the case if Dan Donovan's the nominee
4: no matter who the nominee is hey that. You know, Al Sharpton I don't know will about use that. every <laughs> opportunity he has on a platform which is going to energize anyone that votes Republican? I don't know. I, well, I, look, I, I, think, I, I if think it's the, not Dan that Donovan in the red. We'll you know, what role does else Al Sharpton
0: play to. in this race, and what role does Bill de Blasio play in this race as a potential, I guess, plus a positive reliability liability uh, for a potential Democratic candidate? Well,
4: I've been pretty outspoken right now at the way the mayor's handled the protesters. I mean, where I live in, in Manhattan, they march down 8th Avenue and the traffic goes uptown. If they start allowing protesters to march around Staten Island, blocking traffic, breaking laws, not not being violent, the voters on Staten Island will turn this into a referendum on on Bill De Blasio, no matter who the candidate is. You'll have Bill De Blasio and Al Sharpton on a ticket together, and the the city doesn't need that.
3: I I agree. It's bad for New York City. It's bad for New York State. Um, It's bad for the Republican Party nationally. And again, it's not fair to Dan Donovan. It's almost not fair to Bill de Blasio. I know Bill will disagree. If if there's a Donovan candidacy, these are issues that are going to be highlighted to the detriment of the issues that Staten Islanders need to have discussed. Um, Ultimately, it's up to Donovan. If he decides he wants to run, it's his. If he decides for not, for a variety of reasons, and there will be personal reasons, then, you know, Andy Lanza, Nicole Malliotakis, Jimmy Otto, who knows?
4: Well, I, I guess what I would say is no matter who the candidate is, Al Sharpton's is going to try to use this as a platform to play with. It's got mm. nothing to do with who the candidate is.
3: I would just nuance that and say, given recent post headlines, and if it's not Dan Donovan, I think he finds other things to keep himself busy.
4: Al Sharpton? Yes. Uh, right, well, Al, Al Sharpton and your former boss have one thing very much in common. When they see a camera, they run to it.
0: But how much is it a story, Obi? I mean, think about it. What's the story if it's Andrew Lanzer and Nikoma Ayutakis running? Uh, what's the story What you know for Al Sharpton to be there just because it's Eastbound it, it, Island? There,
4: there is no story. There, I, I it, think there is no Al story. Al Sharpton will still find a way to go there and protest and use yeah, the platform.
0: I disagree. I disagree.
3: No. See... Fragan, we found something we disagree the panelists
0: disagree on. Well, that's, I, I, that's I there we go. I'm, I'm glad we finally got to that because we're actually running out of time. I was hoping as, to get to something. Mayor, Mayor yeah.
3: Koch's credit, I've become more conservative as I've gotten older, so he's he's maintained. So
4: <laughs> but M- Mayor Koch says something the Bob Turner when they uh, had lunch a couple times and numerous times after, uh, after Bob was elected to Congress. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was after Koch had met with the, with the president after that race. And sent a message to the president, and so forth, and used the uh, the race of the proxy. The president knew who Bob Turner was as a freshman congressman. That's not usually the case in Washington. I I
3: I would say whether it's Dan Donovan or Nicole Malliotakis, the president will know because uh, a woman south of 35, who's uh, half Hispanic, uh, being able to represent that district and deliver for the city will capture the attention not just of a Democratic White House, but of all the Republican. Presidential aspirants.
4: And, and every reporter from
0: Washington will take the amp, take Amtrak. Well, they up already
3: there. are. Look, we're we're having this conversation. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, it, that's true. And again, as I, as I reiterate, we don't even have a race yet officially. We
3: don't even have a race
0: yet. So exactly. let's pivot for a second because I want to get to something that just uh and we have to talk about it on the show because it's all mm-hmm. about politics and it's a New York story and it's about our f- uh, former governor passed away mm-hmm. this past week. Former Governor Mario Cuomo, three-term governor of the state of New York, and want to see how both Democratic and political and Republican political consultants can agree or disagree on Mario Cuomo's legacy. Not Andrew Cuomo, gentlemen, Mario Cuomo. So I'll let, I'll let Obi go first as the opposition.
4: Well, I, I think simply put, the fact that he was here for 12 years shows you the, the belief people in New York had for him. I, I think it's a classic problem that many people have, and, and God rest his soul, but that when they're around too long, people get tired of them. And that was what happened when he tried to go for a fourth term. A third term is, generally speaking, not good for any elected official in New York. So See, I, 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 I would say, there, and I'm going to back into legacy, this, that following
3: sorry. Vietnam, following Watergate, following President Carter's spiritual malaise, that the Reagan presidency was a necessary aspect and component of American civic psyche. I think the Reagan presidency was necessary and important. And that it was only Mario Cuomo's speech at the Democratic National Convention in 84 where liberals and progressives were able to articulate a voice and a message to discuss the other side of the Reagan years, which was civil rights, poverty issues, urban blight, gender inequity, problems with organized labor. Mario Cuomo gave voice to concerns that weren't able to get traction in the first four years of the Reagan, of President Reagan's, eight years. he was a magnificent speaker, no and he was a magnificent that. speaker. You know, my, my daughter asked me, my 11 year old, she said, "Was Mario Cuomo a great governor?" And I said, "I don't know that he was a great governor, but he was a great man, and I think that at the time that was enough, and and I think that's what his legacy will be.
4: Yeah. He, he was a magnificent order. He may have not agreed with what he said, but uh, he had a great way of delivering that message. Yeah, and I think his son did a fantastic tribute to him at the uh, at the funeral when he eulogized him.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, it was, a, it actually was a masterful eulogy and I think that, you know, you actually saw a different side to Andrew Cuomo in his, in his eulogy for his father. Mm-hmm. It was actually quite poignant in, in quite a you know, few respects. Uh, gentlemen, I really want to thank you for having this conversation and hopefully we can have it again as the race actually becomes more defined. We can actually talk about specific uh, strategies for whoever and whomever the candidates are in the special election in New York 11. Uh, Obi Murray, Republican political consultant. Michael Tobin, now an independent political consultant. Thanks for joining us here once again on Spin Class.
4: Thank you. Happy New Year again. Thank you. Happy
0: New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. And want to just uh, give a closing statement. I think it's something that's very interesting, particularly for our listenership out there. Uh, The New York City top 10 names by race and ethnicity or race slash ethnicity as they call it. uh, You can actually see through that the birth rate amongst orthodox jews in new york city and if you look at the top 10 names amongst those define themselves as white uh, by ethnicity of those number three is esther number five is sarah number six is leah number seven is rachel number eight is chaya number nine is miriam and number ten is hannah so now you might say some of those have some crossover, but not all of those do. So that, that means that there are a lot of Jewish Orthodox Jewish girls being born in the city of New York during the 2014. And let's not leave aside those on the boys side. Number one is David. Number two is Joseph. Number three, Michael. Uh, that's so obviously that can be a Jewish name as well. Uh, number four, <laughs> Moshe. Number five, Daniel or Daniel. Number six, Benjamin. Number seven, James. That's going to be out. Number eight, Jacob. Number nine, Jack. And number ten, Alexander. Uh, you have a huge preponderance potentially in the top ten of names that Orthodox Jews would name their children. It's very strong as clearly we know that uh, Orthodox Jews or Jews in general uh, who might use names of biblical names or Hebrew names uh, are having a lot of children in the city of New York. Uh, baruch Hashem, as they say. So as we can say that here on the Nachum Siegel Network, hopefully that's okay. But I think that that also, if you think about it politically, 20 years from now, when all those people are able to vote, that's going to be a lot of voters potentially for everybody out there. So the politicians who are starting out now, who are still going to be around in 20 years, start paying attention to the Orthodox community. Hopefully – there will be enough housing for them to continue to live in the area. Or they might have to go out there and uh, populate other areas as we've seen that growth throughout the state. Thanks for joining us here. Another Thursday night in the bag. See you next week here on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network.